The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. By way of introduction, just want to say that there is the Outsider Archive available on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, along with a whole lot of other archives as well. Shipwreck Tales, Tales of the Lost, 50 ships that changed the course of history, and a big fat array of albums turning 40. I uh, don't know how many we've got stacked there, but there are a hell of a lot. A fresh one next week. I think we're looking at the Rolling Stones. In any case... Uh, after this introductory music, the tale of Rua Kanana with Jared Heinmarsh. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. This week, a real biggie. A huge figure in New Zealand history and legend, I would say, as well. We're talking Rua Kanana, and he's much lauded as uh, a leader of Tuhoi, although rather controversial figure as well. At the time, you could say unfairly harassed by the law, to uh, say the least. But for the full story... Jared Hindmarsh. Good to talk about Prophet Rua. He definitely is a big figure in our history. Really, the squabble with him marked, they say, the end of the New Zealand uh, land wars, if you like, in 1916. He really was a standout figure, a sort of a hard man to pin down to. He lived from 1860 to 1937. He had a big spiritual bent, obviously, and maybe you have to be a tuhoi to, to fully understand this man, but of course I'm coming from a a Pākehā perspective, but there has been a lot written about him, and he talked a lot himself, of course. He was a natural orator. He always spoke with his hands clasped together and thinking deeply, and he, he could really be inspirational. He could also be very sullen as well. He called himself the Māori Messiah. He was a brother of Jesus Christ, even. He made some pretty big claims, and believed by a lot of people, too. He could be a very divisive man, but he also became a strong leader, I guess, for the Tuhoi people who were sort of dispossessed and they were a people who needed a vision and he came along at the right time, of course. He did, although he was as well. I think some, in some ways this is a little paved over. Uh, he was not the only leader of Tuhoi and there was massive disagreement about what he was doing. And he does strike me as one of those classic cases of a charismatic figure, a cultish religious figure, ended better than David Koresh, but maybe um, the, ch the Mormon church or something like that. They have these charismatic leaders that make, well, outrageous claims too. Yeah, and you've got to remember, you know, what he looked like too. He was a very handsome man. He had long hair. I mean, if today you'd see him, you might say, oh, he's a raster or something, you know. The Rua became a very well-known figure and, and he um, was frequently photographed too, of course, in the end. He's inspired playwrights and poets and filmmakers and painters and songwriters 
in New Zealand. A lot of people have used that story of Rua to sort of keep alive the issues of justice and Maori autonomy, I guess. But, you know, he's been rightly called a faith healer, a land right activist, a, a sort of reclaimer of, of Tuhoi land. But he definitely split the um, Rangatū Church, which was founded by Takuti. And, of course, he set up his own sort of non-violent religious community at uh, Mangapauhatu, which is under the sacred mountain of the Tuhoi in the Urawera country. But by 1900, that was the last place in New Zealand that hadn't been defined by the native land courts. And he called that place um, New Jerusalem. It was quite a settlement. It had about 1,400 people, I think, and even had a savings bank and a farming cooperative. He was quite far-sighted, you know, but the authorities and the settlers, particularly the European settlers around him, they saw him as disruptive and subversive. They went out to destroy him, basically, you know, and 1916 was really the definitive time, and that's when the armed police sneaked in on the settlement and brought him to justice, if you like, and as I said, that was really the taken as some as the last sort of war of the New Zealand uh, land wars, so an amazing guy, but there's a lot uh, said about that confrontational time in his life, but he's had a remarkable sort of up The atmosphere of the times in which Rua was brought up as a little kid during land wars and then after that it was the time of the how-how and that was about as vicious as it ever got in this country, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And his father uh, fought for Takuti too and he was killed when um, Rua was actually in his mother's womb. So, and his parentage has been disputed by some of his relatives. It does sound like his father was killed when his mother was pregnant with him. Uh, that was his father was Kanana Tumoana and he was killed fighting for Takuti in 1869, the same year that Rua was born. His mother was from a different tribe. She came from Manga Pohatu, so that was her affiliation back to the Tuhoi, and that's where Rua really identified himself. He really was. He was raised amongst the Tuhoi people, and, and he was a thoughtful child, apparently, and he had a huge spiritual longing, and he talked about going to live with his father's people as a sort of time in exile. He regarded even his childhood times as almost biblical, and he absorbed all the religious prophecies of Takuti and that one would come after him to complete his work by sort of redeeming the land for Maori. And this is how he took his life's work, that he would redeem the Tuhoi people and the land for them. And as a young man, he um, became totally convinced he was the reincarnation of this man. It was his life's work of Takuti. Yeah. Yeah, the Maori Messiah. We should tell people the areas of land concerned, the Tuhoi area up in the Uruweras and out east from there. That's right. And his father's land actually went all the way to the Bay of Plenty, actually. So it's a huge bit of ground that he was associated with and he thought always unfairly taken too, of course. It does seem very much as though it was unfairly taken. The government did cynically take advantage of 
lots of desperate situations that Tuhoi found themselves in. Exactly. And it was only two years after Takuti died, that was 1890s. He was only about 16 or 17. He actually came out claiming to be the son of Takuti, and it created a huge kerfuffle amongst the Maori people there. But he did get huge support from his mother's tribe, the, the Tuoi, of course. But um, everyone knew, you know, that he had to prove himself in a series of quests. And this is where it becomes almost biblical. But the oral narratives around 1904. Five, they tell how a sort of supernatural apparition told him to climb the sacred Tuhoi mountain and there he would be shown this bright shining diamond. Of course, there it was, the guardian stone of the land. And supposedly it was hidden in Takuti's cloak. And he took this to be a sign that he was indeed, as he called himself, the brother of Christ. In 1906, there were still disbelievers, so he undertook another task, as he called it, and he pilgrimaged to Poverty Bay, which was Takuti's birthplace, and he was going to the sacred meeting house. This is Rongapai, and it was built to receive Takuti after the land wars, and suddenly, apparently, well, this is how the story goes, a great white horse appears, and he enters the place, the meeting house, on this horse, and the meeting house is locked, of course, so there's this miraculous event apparently witnessed by many and the, and the pohanga of the village actually baptises Rua at this point. We should say also that immediately prior to him seeing this vision or hearing the voice that told him to climb the mountain and find this diamond, uh, the diamond was never seen, that the Tuhoi were in a desperate state at that time. There were um, failed crop, bad weather. The government just at the time saw this as a tremendous opportunity to say, well, here's some money, uh, but give us some of that land and uh, you'll be able to feed yourselves, taking advantage of their plight, really, to get the way to f satisfy the appetite of uh, more land for the settlers. Yeah, well, that's right. Of course, they actually sold 40,000 acres shortly afterwards, about 31,000 pounds. It was all supposed to go into development. But the whole Tuhoi struggle, it was underwritten by poverty. It really was. And supposed roads and access that wasn't put in, they were just left to subsist, really, amongst themselves. It was a terrible plight, really. So Rua actually gave himself a name at this time, uh, Hepzibah. He had this parallels that they were like the lost tribe of Israel. He rode to Gisborne on his white horse and he carried with him the whole way this box, a wooden box. And of course, people were speculating that it had the Ark of the Covenant in it. And the word was spreading very fast, actually, about Rua. They'd, you know, the Messiah had arrived and he was riding a white horse and he said his mission was to seek peaceful restoration of authority for the Tuhoi people. Along with his mystical prophet nature, uh, that comes after a time when he was making his a name for himself a healer of people during the massive outbreaks of illness that were hitting the Maori population. The government passed a law. You're not allowed to treat people with this uh, spooky tohunga stuff. 
the government tried to arrest him for this, but he'd quit doing that by the time the government put in that law. So uh, Rua won, and uh, the government nil at that stage. Yeah, that uh, Tohunga Suppression Act actually was aimed specifically at him, and they've been watching him. Doesn't it have a, a lot of parallels with the recent case of the uh, Eurowera 5? Of course, it really does. Being watched up there, you know, place of subversion and everything else. In 1906, calling himself the new messiah he started making these mystic pronouncements these didn't come true of course uh, jared but as a prophet he said on the forthcoming june the 25th he would ascend the throne and that the king would arrive at tūranga and that's the name for gisborne as it was then known that's right it was kind of obscure but it had a set date on it <laughs> Yeah, um, A lot of people thought, well, most people thought that Edward VII, the King of England, was going to come down, give him heaps of money for this big diamond that no one's ever seen, and everyone would be happy. That's right. And when the king didn't turn up, he said, I am really that king. Here I am with all my people. So he had everything covered and was prepared to make it all work as it went along, obviously. He was a very clever man. There's no doubt about it. And in 1907, he started the creation of the City of God, if you like, and this was uh, Mangahotapu, where he wanted to protect his Tuhoi country from European mining and settlements. And the people who settled there with him came to regard themselves like a tribe of Israelites. They were separated unto God, and they these people grew their hair long like the sort of Nazarites, and they built this big circular meeting house that sort of, you know, is well known in the pictures, and uh, they they built it and they decorated it with very distinctive blue clubs and yellow diamonds. There's a bit of Zionist sort of architecture in that too. It's an amazing looking thing. I think it's one of New Zealand's most original yeah. pieces of architecture. Oh, absolutely. It was built to imitate the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. Ah. And it had a council chamber and a parliament and the, it was right in the middle of the par and it had a big sign. So there was a big sign at the entrance to the par that said Messiah. And that was the name card really for Rua and his own house actually was a, a European style gable home he which he called New Jerusalem he lived an amazing life by 1908 he actually had seven wives Graham yeah he was he was very well liked by woman I'll tell you yep true um although a less charitable view is that so many of these things uh, over history it happens over and over again the cult leader ah I need lots of wives. It says so in the Old Testament. Yeah. yeah. Also, the people that joined, they had to give their personal property to him. Does that sound familiar? Oh, exactly. And I'm not saying that he didn't have good intentions or worthy intentions regarding governorship of their own land. But, boy, it does read like a cult leader as well. And I, this, this will be unpopular, an unpopular view to many. But I'm calling it as I see it as far as I can know it. Well, he definitely justified the multiple wives thing, saying he fulfilling the vision of Isaiah in the Bible, which is chapter 4, verse 1, apparently, and he used to quote this, and he actually ended up with 12 wives, Graham, and he had kids by all of them, and actually with his first wife, that was uh, Penny Penny, he had 17 kids. It was amazing. They used to call her the Holy Mother, and another one was called um, Queen of Sheba, she to whom King Solomon gave his 
desires. Something going on with them all, of course, and they all came from different tribes and factions. So all these alliances were formed, of course, through this. The last wife he married was Pamima. That was in 1918. And the kids all had very strategic marriages too. A lot of them were arranged. And even his daughter, she married one of five men who actually dug up Takuti in 1893 and reburied him in a secret place so all the wives and families all very political we'll take a break i think it's good to get plenty of background into rua kanana in the tuhoi country it's complex and it's bloody fascinating and as far as an outsider goes this qualifies 100 percent we'll take a break and come back very shortly the weekend variety wireless with dock edge festival details visit dockedge.nz Outsiders with Jared Hindmart, the amazing story of the prophet, the Maori prophet, spiritual leader in the Uruwera at around about the turn of the 1900s. We're talking Rua Kanana. He's, he's lionised today uh, pretty much in the region, but he was divisive as well. Okay, where are we up to? He's built this extraordinary place. People have given their property and land from surrounding areas to join him in this spiritual quest for, you could say, the liberation of his people? Yeah, that's right. And uh, in 1910, he joined a movement amongst the Tuhoi for land reforms, and he was actually in the tribal committee that sold all 40,000 acres to the government. This was for £31,000. It was spent on land development, but it never really got much traction. It was an isolated place, Graham. It had, as you said, it had a lot of social um, problems. There was huge infant mortality. They were away from any doctors. None of the so-called roads had been developed and poverty undermined the whole religious vision, really. And in 1914, he tried to sort of bring it alive with a second building program, but it was more conventional. Another meeting house was constructed. The first one he instructed to be abandoned, and the big round one, they moved from that into a more conventional one. They all cut their hair, and they ushered in the years of what they called the New Covenant. And he basically took his followers through the biblical sequence stories of the Bible. To back up just a little, he was not universally loved in the area. There were two Hoi chiefs at the same time, famously Numia Kereru. He had his own outfit there and he was part of this council that decided in 1896 everyone's got to agree and if any land is sold. Well, here comes Rua selling off Kereru's land, claiming himself to be a leader to get money to finance his community slash cult. That doesn't go down well with your neighbour next door. No, definitely didn't. It actually culminated in a meeting actually of the two factions with Joseph Ward in 1908 on the beach. It was a famous meeting at Fukutani, I think that was. And Joseph Ward talked to them both, but separately because they were so divisive. As he said to Rua, there can't be two suns in the sky at once. What he was saying was there can't be a married government alongside English one and he uh, was very definitive. He listened to those words with great sullenness and out of that came a kind of seditious, almost a seditious behaviour. But the government had been on to, and we talked about the 1907 Tohunga Suppression Act aimed specifically at him and the local police were instructed from May 1906 to watch him and he was, as they said, quote, suspected of acting as a Tohunga and he was harassed basically 
but he was never actually charged with anything. No. He did use his self-proclaimed spiritual status. This wouldn't have made some other people in the Urawera very happy. He used his spiritual status to lift tapu from objects and locations throughout the region and many formerly sacred objects were therefore deprived of their spiritual value and could be offered for sale to Pākehā collectors and institutions. Who got that return? He did. Yeah, exactly, Graham. There's a, there's a lot of self-interest in this, I must admit. You can go along about all the spiritual side, but really, there really was a lot of pretty mundane stuff going on and of course one of the things that really escalated for the authorities and they saw it as an opening to come down on him was the consumption of alcohol. There was an alcohol ban in the community for a long time. Yeah there was and there was a lot of sly grogging going on and uh, more of it apparently will um, this is what the other faction maintained far more of it at Rua's camp than anywhere else. All right. So Rua, the, you know, self-designated Maori prophet, he'd actually ignored the law and now he was just as defiant in the presence of the police and they turned up to talk to him and he said, if you put your hands on me, you start big fight. There were two policemen dedicated to going into the Urawera country, two sergeants, Sergeant Cummings and Constable Grant, and they actually went into the Urawera country on the 12th of February 1916 to actually arrest him. And he'd already been sentenced to terms of imprisonment for breaking the liquor laws. This was in his absence, and they explained the magistrate's decision. But, of course, it meant little to him, and he, he replied back to them, "'The king is no good.'" He not giving me a licence. I'm willing to pay £200 to £300. Yeah. It was illegal, I think, wasn't it, for Māori to buy alcohol, to make their own alcohol or something like that? There was a special regulation for their settlements. i just got to correct myself. The law was you couldn't be a retailer of, of alcohol, and that's what was going on, apparently. Okay, right. Yeah. Yeah. And the two policemen, they tried to pacify him, but it sort of had the opposite effect on him. He got excited and, and pulled off his coat and he said, we are all ready. If you put one hand on me, I'll pull you down and kill. And he repeated these words in the presence of several of his followers. So this was when it was really starting to turn nasty with the authorities. Up until then, they were really just watching him. So Rua challenged him. He said, send the governor and the magistrate to me. I'm too big a fellow to go to them. He then made use of language which would, would, you know, be considered sort of seditious at the time when New Zealand was committed into going into a major war. He said, I have 1,400 men here and I'm not going to let any of them enlist or go to the war. When the Germans win, I am going to be king here. Now... The police um, considered it best not to interfere at this point because there was only two of them, obviously, and everyone piling up behind Rua. So they decided to go back and recruit more men and, and maybe could be arrested reasonably safely. But the government was still kind of negotiating. They decided to ask Honourable Apirana Nata. Now, his electoral district included the Urawera, so he went in to meet Rua. The government wanted to point out 
to him the wisdom of submitting peacefully to the police. Nata did his absolute utmost to convince Rua that by defying authority, he was only pursuing a policy that meant absolute disaster for everyone in his community. Now, Rua just refused to listen to this advice, but he indicated that he'd like to see the minister. Yeah, it's a real challenge to pride, isn't it? And I think pride is its important and a big factor here. Yeah, it was. And I think, uh, you know, they weren't just going to race in and get him. It would, be a, it would be a disaster for everyone. They knew that. So they were sort of negotiating with him. And so the minister in charge of police, that was Alexander Herdman. He was accompanied by the commissioner of police and they visited uh, Rua Tahuna on the 21st of March. And they invited Rua to meet them there and surrender to the police. Now, the Maori prophet, when when he got the instructions that he was to surrender to the police, of course, he wouldn't even leave his stronghold. So it was then decided to send an adequate police force to um, Mangapahatu to capture him. So this is when it really became a heavy scene, really. And for many years, he'd been openly defying the laws of the country and, and exercising authority, really, to which he had no legal right in the country or legal right under the white man's laws anyway. And and I think he'd been given quite a lot of liberty just because of his position. So it sort of inflated his sense of authority and uh, he was—he felt that he was completely outside British law and order. And as I said, Joseph Ward, he also made an attempt to meet Rua and his followers on a beach at Whakatane for a Cory row there. And uh, they put forward um, both sides at the time. And Rua was so sullen and he wouldn't even hardly acknowledge the um, Prime Minister. And uh, so the, the Prime Minister had to talk to both sides separately. You know, just there was quite a lot of effort the government was making. There was no doubt, and Prime Minister advised the uh, carriers, as they were called, to try to settle their difference with the Ruaites and live happily. And then he told Rua that in New Zealand, King Edward was king, and he was represented here by his government. And uh, the Prime Minister said, the government will do what is right by Rua and the rest of the Maori as long as they do what is right. So absolutely produced no result whatsoever, these appeals to Rua. And he continued to ignore the law, really. And February 1910, he was belligerent with a party of Pākehā that came through, and they reported that. But, you know, he was also described as an affable man. He was about 40 at the time. He had a sort of a light persona, if you like. He was always wonderfully fluent of speech, and he could always sort of give a little oratory wherever he was but he definitely spoke far better in Marius. Command of English wasn't all that good. He had unmistakable magnetism and as rule at Mangapohapu it had, you know, the round timber temple was his visible sign of his authority, you know, what he called the New Jerusalem and it was used for committee meetings and, and when not required for anything like that he was utilised as a barn actually. He created this impression especially with his, all his young wives, of you know, and, and he'd always have nine around him at any one time. And his ambition was said to be to make Mangapohatu self-supporting and, and self-contained by means of a system of Maori cooperative farming with himself as an overlord. He definitely had a plan in a, a sort of communal sense or almost a sort of communist sense. He had his finger on it, really, without a doubt. 
When he first built his temple, of course, the Maoris who lived in that settlement, they weren't supposed to drink any intoxicating liquor and they weren't even allowed to smoke, actually. They had a sort of agreement. Now, it was an industrious little community and Ruhr at the time was very respectful of law and order, but this is a sly grog selling became rife and in 1911, Ruhr faced these five charges of various breaches of the liquor laws and he, he appeared before the magistrate and he was fined on four of the charges and on the 5th he was ordered to come up for sentence when called upon and he duly paid his fines and then we had this rising situation and in March 1915 he came to the notice of the police that they were drinking orgies in Rua's stronghold and he was apprehended and brought up on another five charges of sly grog selling. Now he was convicted and ordered to come up for sentence on each charge and uh, and, w- and one of them he was sentenced to three months imprisonment in respect to the remaining charge of the previous five. Now, so he spent this three months in jail and he returned to his stronghold and drunkenness amongst his followers was still rife. So this is when Rua told them that he was too busy to go to court and because he was grass-seeding his Coxfoot's paddock, actually. So uh, he had a good excuse. He was busy and he didn't have time to go to court. And he actually persuaded one of the constables to write a note to the magistrate asking him to adjourn the case until he was less busy with the seeding. Now, the magistrate regarded um, Rua's note as a contempt of court. In his absence, he was found in uh, £50 and default three months' imprisonment in respect to each fine and he was further sentenced to one month's imprisonment on each of the remaining three charges. This is where the big confrontation happens now. The law feels like they have exhausted everything in trying to get him. They've sentenced him in his absence and he won't turn up in court. He's in contempt and that's it. They had had enough of him. All right, Brewer Kanana his story. We'll take a break and come back very shortly. Outsiders with Jared Heinrich. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. Outsiders with Jared Heinmarsh. Rook Kanana has set up his own stronghold with a spiritual basis um, in Tuhoi country, but he's getting in more and more trouble with the government. They've, they've got him on liquor laws, basically. But... They're also so frustrated that the land isn't being opened up as uh, they wanted. And also in the wake of Tukuti and the Hau situation, I suppose they just may be afraid as well and would really rather see an end to this character's sedition, something along those lines. Anyway, it does come to blows in the middle of Tuhoi country, doesn't it? Yeah, on the 2nd of April 1916, it was the... It's regarded as the worst clash between police and a Maori community in the 20th century, actually. A force of 57 constables were sent to arrest Rua at his stronghold. Now, they didn't just come in uh, at the track. They wanted to surprise him, and members of the force, they camped on a Saturday night in the heart of the bush. That was about six or seven miles from uh, Mangapohatu, and they uh, set out on the last stage of the journey at about 7.30am on the Sunday, which was the 2nd of April. Now, the way lay through thick bush, and the first three or four miles or something 
coming from the stronghold track it had to be cut out of the mountainside by the leading constables on there's a very steep ascent down and when they reached the top of the ridge they could see two miles or so away a sort of intervening valley and there they could make out the temple and the meeting house and the little forest forming um, Rua's settlement and, and it's quite high up you know it's 3,200 feet up Graham altitude it's a sort of a mountain settlement of but look, there was flying a white flag and it was plainly seen on a knoll lying on the valley which suggested that to the police that Rua meant to give himself up peacefully. Now, when the, when the sort of long cavalcade of advancing policemen, they finally came out of the track at the base of the knoll, our Commander Cullen, he noticed that the white flag had been taken down and obviously they'd been spotted. The surprise was off and, and Cullen immediately took the precaution of ordering his men to load 20 rifles, 30 or 40 revolvers as well, ready for use. The Maoris opened fire on the police force from several points in the confines of the par and scrub around it. And uh, after a half hour's fighting, Rua asked Commander Cullen to, to allow him to send out his woman to call the men in. So obviously he was preparing to some sort of surrender. The commissioner agreed to this and four or five uh, Maori women went off in different directions, hollering out to their men to come in. It was over, it was over, you know. And they succeeded in bringing in uh, several men and, and the firing ceased. Now, at that point there were four policemen wounded and two Maori wounded and one of them was a son of Rua who, who died actually. And there were other Maoris who were also injured as well. Well, Rua was carted off. He was carted off. He was he was frog-marched, apparently. Uh, another report says carried face down by each of his arms and legs. Purposely humiliating, I think. That almost started up another scrap. Some more gunshots were heard, but they went silent again. Yeah, and there was no doubt that at least one of the Maoris was summarily executed actually and they reckon they, in this particular the evidence the police gave the senior police officers later orchestrated the police evidence stating the first shot was fired by a Maori and it was part of a planned ambush but the, the Maori always course stated it was a police shot and the weight of evidence does support the Maori case actually although the, the matter's never going to be solved of course. His trial Kanana and five of his followers that started in the Supreme Court in Auckland before Justice Chapman on the 9th of June 1916 and they say that perjury was committed by the police concerning two Maori deaths and Toko who was initially wounded when he grabbed a gun and began to fire at the police he was actually executed they think once they'd got him so it was a pretty vicious very vicious encounter actually yeah yeah. And legally, interestingly, legally, you say how he was carted off. Well, his arrest was actually an assault as it had taken place on a Sunday for a minor offence at the time. And, uh, you know, he was only up for a liquor offence. Apparently, there were some rules about this arresting people on a Sunday. And Cullen, he was actually guilty of use of excessive force. Interesting. But, you know, that's all said. It was a, it was a nasty situation. That's all it was. So he was um, charged with all sorts of things. He was charged of um, counselling and procuring persons to murder and to discharge firearms with intent to um, resist lawful apprehension. He was also arraigned on, on several other charges, um, including one of using seditious language calculated to 
prejudice recruiting. So the um, very keen to get Maori recruits, the government was at the time, and they realised one word from him and no one would enlist, of course, which was considered a seditious offence at the time. Outsiders to Gerard Hindmarsh, the remarkable story around the 1910s and about the time of 1916, the story of Rua Kanana in Tuhoi country. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. There's been a bad fight in Tuhoi country between police and the supporters of... Uh, the legendary figure, now legendary, Rua, still held in great regard in the area and for a lot of people as well for fighting for his people's rights. He's got done for the uh, sly grogging in the area, but um, it took a lot of gunshots to do it and has left a very bitter taste and death uh, in the hills of the Urawera. Yeah, and despite his arguments, he came across very strongly. One law for both races, he maintained, you know, that there should be a similar law for Maori people and that the white people, a sly grogger as such, wouldn't be harassed in the same way with armed constables turning up on Sunday and everything. And the, the same time, the government claimed he was masquerading as a preacher of the gospel, a prophet at times, even calling himself the Holy Ghost. And, you know, accusations went back and forth. And that case went on for 47 days. It was actually the longest case in New Zealand until 1977. It was without precedent in Australia or New Zealand, and it really was even taken up in the annals of the British Empire as a sort of test case. And the jury had to sit through from day to day continuously, and there were 87 witnesses, and there had been 19 incidents of recalling evidence, and the judge you know, made quite a comment about the size of it and everything. He, he also indicated that the arrest at Munga Pohatu could not actually be justified as the warrant could not be executed on a Sunday. So this became one of their tenets of defence, actually. But the accused was found guilty of resisting the police and not guilty of using seditious language and on the charges of counselling to murder and counselling to do grievous bodily harm. The jury disagreed, but he was sentenced to 12 months hard labour and 18 months reformative treatment. He actually was an exemplary prisoner, Graham, and uh, on his release, actually, he sort of did a turnaround. He um, decided to cooperate more with the government. Some people actually called him an ardent supporter of the government. It was quite interesting, and in contrast to the charge he faced of using seditious language, he was actually responsible for raising many recruits for the Maori Pioneer Battalion that served in World War One. actually. So, interesting sort of... Very quiet into the man. A lot of people say he was pragmatic. Yeah, he definitely was. When he was released from prison in, in April 1918, he returned to the community, but he was actually heavily indebted now by all the legal costs, and he'd taken on the cost of all his other comrades' trials as well. And now the police actually went him for the co entire costs of the police expedition. They filed costs against him. But he was resolute. He, he moved back to Mangapahatu and he uh, went about reconstruction of the place for the third time. This is another thing that, unfortunately, I, th I think does reflect the cult leader side of things. Buying those 
big flash cars that he hardly used and, you know, entourages and things like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, look, those crazy cars that they bought. You've got to remember, private cars were an absolute luxury in those days. And he shuttled between his settlements in a fleet of open Cadillacs and all his followers. What an image in the middle of the Uruweras. Yeah, absolutely astounding, isn't it? And interestingly, when Rua was in prison, actually, about ready to come out, the Presbyterian mission, they saw an opening, they established itself at Mangabahatu, and they opened a school in July 1918, and Rua gave his support to the school on the understanding that, in return, the Presbyterians would never erect a church there. Now, this was an unusual basis for the cooperation that developed between Rua and the missionary, but, you know, it, it was an unlucky kind of place in 1925, there was a terrible outbreak of typhoid fever in uh, Mangapahatu and Rua was advised actually by the uh, medical authorities to reconstruct their homes and, and put their toilets outside. He turned his knowledge to wider purposes actually Rua and he sort of um, wanted to rebuild the city of God on earth and he was still coming out with all these prophecies. He predicted the end of the world and a reign of stars in 1927 and he ordered the reconstruction of all the houses all possessing tin roofs against this event. Once again, the people were told to sell all their belongings and they regathered from the lower-lying valleys to the foot of the mountain and gave all their money to him. So, interesting little postscript to his life, really, and there was a second exodus by Tuhoi people to Mangapohatu. They left, really, in around 1927 because the government um, refused their compensation or giving back of lands, and a lot of people saw that as a fine blow and they left. There were a lot of people leaving him at this time. Rather deflated. Yeah, the place had sort of failed economically and by the early 1930s the people were forced to leave to seek even basic food and employment. We actually, Rua went to live in the early 1930s at Matahi, which is a community he founded on the Waimana River in the eastern Bay of Plenty in 1910, and he died on the 20th of February 1937, and he was 68 years of age. He'd left five wives. And a prophecy. Yeah, and he predicted that he would rise on the third day, and when the appointed time had passed, his coffin was actually sealed in a concrete vault, which he had ordered to be built beside his home. Well, with his prophecies, he has a 100% record, actually, of being wrong. <laughs> well, that's correct, of course, but it depends how you see things can be skewed, and in fact, <laughs> to some people, it could be completely fulfilled. Yeah, and he, so, you know, you can imagine, that what a larger-than-life figure, to say the least, you know. Classically charismatic. Yes, he was, and he personally used, there was no doubt, he personally used a lot of the money he collected, and he, and, but he also directed wealth into, into communal projects, and he, he purchased seed and distributed food in difficult times. He was a divisive leader, but he was also amazingly a leader for a dispossessed people really who needed a vision and he fitted the bill perfectly and look at how many descendants he I mean one of his wives had 22 kids today if people say I'm descended from Prophet Ruhr I go wow there's a lot of people who are he left a big legacy Graham yeah yeah yeah, a, a unifier in many ways and a touch of the David Koresh's in yeah. the other unfortunately yeah. including the way uh, that final arrest took place but, but the real gripe, I think, came from not just Brewer. He was, in many ways, sort of a, a blip in the fortunes of the Tuhoi people. 
he did, by illegitimate means, sell other people's land that they didn't want to sell, who were Tuhoi chiefs, seemingly for his own gain. My way is only way, basically. But that 1896, uh, like, like a treaty, that the government would have to get ticks from all the different Tuhoi concerned before they could buy the land. They were just so simply ripped off. But it came very, very close to an independent republic of Tuhoi. That's my thrust, actually. It was really, really close, with the government's blessing. Yeah, and it was it could have been a problem they had off their plate, in a way. Half of their thinking was that could happen and they could live uh, happily ever after and they're by themselves and cause no-one else a problem. But, you know, there's a lot of divisive stuff that goes on, uh, particularly tribally and stuff, and yeah. very hard to fathom sometimes, Graham. Happily ever after, is there's a reason why it's in a lot of fairy tales as well yeah but it might have been a better lot for the tuhoi but i think a lot of it's been reconciled now yeah apart from the overzealous reaction from the police shall we say to uh, people running around in the order yeah, that's right, and how much do we learn through history? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure there's a few prophet rulers hiding in there somewhere. Oh, yeah. You've hung out in the Urawera, I'm sure, haven't you? Yeah, of course I have, yeah. When it comes to being a place where the local indigenous people run it, they do. You can't do anything there without the blessing of the local Tuhoi or whichever related tribes are there, can you? No, you can't now. Absolutely impossible. And they have a kind of expectation that, that that's how it is now, and it is, isn't it? You know? Yeah. yeah. It really is. Jared, a fascinating story. Rua Kanana. If you go to the Uruweta Forest, you will see a lot of dedication to him around the place at Waikamoana. And completely aside from all that, it's one of the most stunning places I've ever been to. It's just marvellous. Jared Hindmarsh, great story. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Graham.